Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximizer Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. I am home. I'm in the office today. I am off just enjoying myself. I'm going to be hunting a little bit this week. I, uh, we, this is, we're going to continue this technical hunting series and this series, we're going to dig into different folks, you know, perspective philosophies that hunt different States that have, you know, their system and process. And we're going to break down, you know, somebody new system and process to introduce you to new concepts and ideology that I think some of us may not clue into all the time. This is getting the nitty gritty, the, the nuts and bolts. I talked last time with Steve Shirk and I about execution, and we'll get into some of that today. Uh, may talk a little more gear today because Steve is pretty simplistic as am I. So give me a second. Hey, Dieter, are you on the line? I'm here. All right, great. So I've got a new guest on, and we're going to have multiple new guests for this next series. Uh, Dieter, I want you to introduce yourself. I want you to give a little bit of background about you and where you're currently living, and then we'll kind of drill into some of the basics so people know more about you and your evolution as a hunter. Okay. Yeah, Dieter Cocken. I'm 49 years old and bow hunting since I was probably about 16. I think that uh, the biggest thing that kind of shaped my learning as a, as a whitetail hunter was I played hockey growing up. I ended up being fortunate enough to play professional hockey. With that, I was moving all over the place. So I lived in six or seven different states during that time. And that forced me to really look at a lot of different terrains and hunting styles and kind of evolve and be as, as well-rounded as I could possibly be. And I think with whitetail hunting, one of the other kind of interesting thing is I'm currently a state trooper in the Michigan State Police and I'm in the canine unit. So I've had a narcotics detection dog for six years and now I have an explosive detection dog also. So learning from the dogs as it relates to, you know, not only detecting odor, but kind of the problem solving components that that apply to whitetail deer hunting. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think and I think I've listened to you before on another podcast. This is quite a few years ago, and I, I, I remember you being a canine cop and dealing with, you know, that hunt, that kind of information and utilizing it for deer hunting. You know, on the flip of that, you know, obviously, you know, the importance of understanding there are some differences in biology and, you know, deer themselves, you know, their, their cadence or their ability to smell is pretty significant. So, you know, introducing that into your system or philosophy is probably really critical. And obviously, you probably have a lot of test cases playing out with the dogs of, you know, how, how easily concentrated scent is you know, at a distance, et cetera. And I'm sure that kind of plays into some of your philosophies. Now, the reason I, I wanted you on this podcast is I, I know you've killed some really big deer in tough hunting states. I know you've hunted New York, Connecticut, some of the, you know, East Coast areas, but also Midwest. And I think you're, you currently live in Michigan from what I remember. Is that correct? Correct. I'm, I'm way up in uh, UP in Michigan. So it's, it's a great place to hunt just because there's so much public land. It's obviously very challenging if you've heard anything about Michigan with lower deer densities. There are older deer. The most difficult part is finding them. Once you find them, then you have the ability to kind of chase them to the ends of the earth. But that's kind of the challenge up here. It's more of a, it's a marathon hunting season up here because the last three deer I've shot have been in later December. So, you know, you have the early season, obviously now where it's probably the most difficult with, with the heavy browse patterns. And then, you know, in the rut, you can obviously have success. And then late season, a lot of other people kind of give up and you have a full reign of <laughs> millions of acres. So I enjoy the late season. Yeah. I think that's important because you're killing big bucks or mature deer in areas that I think people don't necessarily focus in on. And that is a reason why I want to dig into your system. And so I want to start with locating deer. You know, what is your, 
what is your basic strategy to finding the deer? What, what are the tools, equipment, strategy? How do you how do you start in an area? And you know, in your current setting, I know you hunt multiple states, but for your current setting where you spend the most time, how do you attack that? So, hunting obviously huge pieces. I think I probably hunt five different pieces that are like 50,000 acres. So I get a lot of questions about really big pieces and you just have to slowly start breaking it down. And I end up using trail cameras quite a bit during velvet. And the way I utilize those in Michigan, you're allowed to bait. I don't, I don't bait during the season because I generally don't think it's as effective, but when you're allowed to bait, I'm allowed to put out minerals. So I'll put my minerals out now that I'm going to run cameras on next year. So you're kind of looking one year ahead of time because you're not allowed to put mineral out in the summer, but if it's already put out the previous fall, it is what it is. So I run my cameras on those and that's where I'm looking to identify just, just, I need proof of life. If I can get a picture of a buck, then that's all I need. Then I'll, then I'll dig into that area. I'll, you know, hunt the best, areas, hunt the sign, do all that. I just need to know one exists. So I try to find a couple to go after that I can locate in velvet. And then those are the areas I'm going to concentrate on. And then after they go hard horn, I switch all my cameras to scrapes and I'm a big scrape hunter. That's pretty much what 90% of the time I'm keying on the, the food patterns up here are so browse related where they they fluctuate more than they would with with ag i think the the nearest ag fields in most of the places i hunt are 60 miles away so you have no real specific bed to food it's more nomadic browse patterns and stuff like that so i end up keying a lot on scrapes in kind of travel areas and and get it done that way that the one unique thing i guess some of those deer i've been able to locate when they're in velvet in their home range, I've been able to relocate late season right before they migrate. So if I can get a picture on a picture of a buck in velvet, there's a good chance I can kill him in the same exact area once the heavy snow comes. That's interesting. And and that's something that I'm too unfamiliar with because I do work in big wood settings with my clients, but this forested ground and uh, Steve Shirk and I, we just did a big woods technical hunting podcast. It's funny because they do relocate at some capacity, but the reality of it is some don't relocate as frequently as you would think. Like I'm in forest ag setting and predominantly forest versus ag. Uh, I don't know what the ratio is. I'd probably say 70 to 30. And in those scenarios, you know, the relocation is uh, significantly higher as compared to your scenarios. But generally speaking, the just ag land, the relocation numbers are way higher. So, you know, deer are immigrating and uh, leaving all over the place. And so it's interesting you you bring that point up because we've brought that up on the show before. Um, the scrape piece of it and figuring out transition corridors, those type of things. Are you creating your own mock scrapes? Are there signpost type scenarios where, you know, it's a very consistent advertised scrape that you've keyed on year in and year out? Do you have to expand your horizon a little bit? Because I think you're trying to target older age class deer, you know, kind of, kind of go into some of those details. So I'll, if I can find a good scrape in a location I can hunt, I'd obviously hunt that, but you're almost more likely to create, you know, the, the circumstances you need with a mock scrape with, you know, you can control where your wind's going, you can control the topography, you control whether or not they can get behind you. So it's easier to make mocks that are tactically to your advantage than to just hunt natural scrapes because you might not have the advantage. I'll run a lot of my cameras on the natural scrapes and I have a lot of spots where like I may be able to check two or three cameras on the way to my tree that are on scrapes where I can't, I don't really have the advantage to hunt them in those areas, but I can get all the intel I need. So when they come through, I know they're in the area because the deer up here seem to be very nomadic to where they may disappear. They, they, they don't relocate. I don't think, I don't know if they do big loops and they'll just spend a couple days here, move on to a couple days here and then come back. But 
if I catch them on a camera, then I know they're probably going to be around for a couple days. And then I can just go to the areas I have an advantage. And sometimes it ends up being, if you have the right tree where you might sit it four days in a row, if you have the right wind, knowing that eventually he's probably going to come by where if you were hunting like a destination area, you know, you'd, you'd probably end up burning that spot out due to other deer, or maybe he comes in later or catches your scent when he comes through at night. It seems that, you know, if you don't see him for a couple of days, your chances almost get better that eventually he's going to show up. So I like the concept that you laid out. You're emplacing tactical scrapes in locations that make it more advantageous for data collection because they're in transition corridors, et cetera, in, a, in adjacent or in, in consideration where your hunting location. So you make it easier on yourself to hunt those particular areas based on that location itself. And then it sounds like what you're doing is diagnosing the specific location, then reaching out beyond that and saying, okay, generally, you know, what, what are the movement patterns that, that we've seen and where do I think, you know, deer reside normally because of this, that, and the other thing. And I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but that, that seems to be what your, your strategy is. So you're in the big woods scenario. And I think a lot of people get a little bit baffled by trying to figure out concentration of sign, you know, other than, you know, just looking at ground tracks and looking at size of track. And I'm assuming sell your cameras, do they work in your area? Do you have to use just, you know, regular cameras? What, what are the, what are those setups like? Yeah, the cell cams don't work. So that's why, you know, a lot of times I could, you know, the quickest way to go to my tree might be in one direction, but a lot of times I'll take the longer way where I can get that information. Cause if you check two cameras on the way to your tree, you're most likely you're going to get three times as much information. So a lot of killing bucks in big areas is just maximizing information where compared to, you know, you, you don't have the ability to just drive roads or glass or, or do anything like that. I mean, you have limited sight distances. You're not going to see very far even from the tree. So if you can get more information, what's going on, you can better adjust and, and make moves and, and kind of predict what you, what you think might happen. And there's just, there's not that many scrapes where I'm at it. And a lot of it has to do with the deer density. I can walk for 10 miles and when I'm scouting in the spring and sometimes I'll be lucky to find one or two. So the sign you find ends up being that much more important compared to if I go to a different state, you know, there could be 50 scrapes on a field edge and they're just, they, they mean less <laughs> yeah, compared to yeah. in the big woods. They're extremely important. You know, I think a lot of people kind of, uh, scrape hunting's more and more popular the last couple of years, but there's a, there's a time period where people basically said they're pointless to hunt them and this, that, or the other. And, you know, a lot of those people are going off experiences in ag land where there's just so many of them. A lot of them are just frustration scrapes with bucks with high testosterone compared to, you know, your big wood scrapes are really, they're the communication point for, for all the deer. And they're really important. I mean, especially when you get into the breeding season, but even throughout the year, if you run cameras on them, you'll get, you'll get pictures of deer in the, in the licking branches all year long. Yeah. And I think that's important for people to think about is if they are of significant value, like in your example, you know, it's focusing on those and creating more meaningfulness around them. A lot of people that are building habitat, you know, in my world, you know, they're capitalizing on that bit of socialization. What they don't realize is it's distracting if there's volume, right? There's, there's a lot of those scrapes throughout the properties. You know, you have to almost concentrate that intel to create that, you know, best opportunity. And that, that may be an intel location, not a hunting location for that matter, all right, so let me flip the script on you. So you're in these scenarios and you've been successful and uh, you're hunting, you know, probably deer per square miles under 10. I'm just guessing, but you know, that, that's probably very similar. This is similar to Adirondacks in my area. Are you doing any of this, you know, this, I, I call it track hunting, uh, where they're tracking and shooting like the Benoits. Are you doing any of that kind of stuff? Or are you, I, I know you bow hunt quite a bit. So I'm kind of wondering like what firearm or implement that you're using and what's your strategy beyond just tree stand hunting? Or are you doing mostly tree stand hunting? I pretty much, I only bow hunt, so I don't really gun hunt. I've, I'm actually really interested in the tracking thing, and, and I might try that because I that uh, actually 
listened to a podcast yesterday. And that's, that's an extremely efficient way to target larger deer and to learn a lot about, you know, what they do out, do throughout the day. But right now I pretty much just bow hunt, a bow hunt during the gun season, just continue with, with that, with that weapon the entire year. And for the, for the most part, it's all tree stand, tree stand hunting, um, obviously targeting, targeting scrapes and, you know, really, I guess more than anything, you know, like I said, with the season being a marathon, you know, sticking with it, you know, you have to have confidence in what you're doing. And, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, I might end up harvesting a deer just, just cause, you know, I don't give up and I keep after it right to the end. So it's, uh, it's Michigan's very challenging compared to obviously some of the other Midwestern states. And then, like you said, I had hunted, uh, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York. So I have an idea of, of what kind of goes on out uh, in your neck of the woods too. People always ask this question. Do you, when you create your scrape, your tactical scrapes, you know, do they have, do you add a synthetic or what do you do in that scrape location? And people always ask, you know, what are the species you're, you're keen in on to create that scrape? Or is it just more locationally based? Can you give some more details on the scrapes themselves? So I, I use buck fever synthetics. Um, I think one of the, I don't, I mean, I don't know exactly what's in their blend, but their, their forehead component has a, has a large curiosity component in my mind where it's, uh, you know, it's a fruitier smelling thing. And so I think that tends to get the deer to, to take the scrapes over more often than not, just because they almost have to put their face in the licking branch because they want to kind of identify what that is. And as soon as they do that, then one deer's done it and then multiple deer are going to do it after that way. So I think, I think that part of it is really good for mocks. And then I like their products just because it feels like you can, you can build throughout the season where, you know, you have, you start with the pre post and then you build to the rut and then you can go into their, their red moon blends and stuff like that. And I've never had the deer. I mean, more than anything, it might just be confidence for me or whatever, but I've never had them react negatively to it. So I've seen nothing but benefit. I, you know, I've, I've done it where you just urinate yourself into the scrape and, and, that works a lot of the times too, but I think it's more how you build them. And especially the closer to vertical, you can get those licking branches and then using the preferred licking branch for that area is the key up here. It's kind of a, our scrapes can be kind of weird up here. Cause a lot of times they, they prefer a balsam fur okay. and they almost, they barely even, they're really, they're difficult to identify because they don't really bite off. They just kind of rub their face in the, in the leaves that they're at the right height. And then they, they make very small scrapes on the ground. And for many years, I kind of ignored these while I was walking through them because I, could, I couldn't tell exactly what they were because they didn't look like, you know, what you would think in a magazine a scrape would work, look like. And eventually, out of curiosity, I hung a camera on it and I was kind of, dumbfounded when basically every good buck in the area that I knew about hit this scrape in a one week period. And, you know, at that point I kind of changed my, my thought process where, you know, the scrape didn't need to look like I wanted it to look like it had to look like what the deer naturally want for that area. So then, you know, once you find a natural one, then you can kind of create. And a lot of it just had to do with limb height with those, particular trees because the licking branches aren't very vertical at all compared to if you can find like uh, a maple or an oak if you can get that if you can get that limb hanging closest to vertical as possible they'll take it over for sure and when you say vertical you mean you break the branch off and in place a vertical like explain exactly what, what you mean by that so it's not necessarily horizontal it's you're turning it downward is that is that what you're trying to do yeah, the more downward, 
the better. You know, I have a couple that are trees that have partially fallen over where they're forced to walk underneath and it, it hangs almost perfectly vertical. And, you know, the, the harder part, once you start breaking them, then, you know, how long those, those limbs last. And I think that's why some of the rope scrapes are so effective in some areas, but I tend not to do those in public just because if someone's walking through there, there's a good chance they're going to ignore a regular scrape. But if they see a rope hanging, <laughs> you know, a rope scrape <laughs> yeah. in there and it's going to draw, you know, other hunters attention. But I, if you have, you know, if you can get the right angle, I'll use ropes and stuff like, you know, like paracord to kind of pull at them to, to get them, you know, at least like a 45 degree downward angle. You know, that seems to be the most effective. I think this is interesting. And a lot of people in your eco region have different preferences. I've worked in areas throughout the country and balsam fir. This, this isn't actually surprising to me at all. And here's like, I'll just take my example. So white pine is very prevalent in, in kind of these upland areas, and they tend to be a really good tree. They're quite aromatic. And for some reason, there's a distinguishable difference. So anybody pays attention to this, the aromatic element of these trees is an added value. And on top of that, uh, so the health and status of the tree, you know, on top of that, um, the scent is so discerning different. It's a di- different scent that's being input. It's no different from why a, a buck clears off the ground you know, they intend to do that behaviorally. That's a reaction. But beyond that is they're removing the vegetation. So there's no competing interest in their your urine matter. So, you know, the bacterial element of the urine is it, is it drips down the hock. So flip, flip this in this scenario, you know, softer bristled, you know, type, you know, structure. And then a part of that is, you know, maybe there's a discerning difference where it's so drastically different that sensual stuff on on their on their head, their forehand gland, glands, et cetera. You know, their glandular output is so discerning that it may not be like competing. But I think there's an aromatic piece of it that draw deer, and they're curious by nature. So it's kind of an interesting, but kind of a I'll just say dissimilar, you know, comparable when you're thinking about how they clear off ground scent. Because what happens is when they urinate, you know, on their hocks you know, eventually things will volatize. And, you know, when you have competing plants in in those particular areas, you know, that will create some, I guess, uh, conflict or competing uh, set potentially. And that's why they try to remove those areas. So it becomes more available and more interest to uh, deer in in that particular area. At least that's my perspective on it anecdotally. All right, I want to take you down another road because this is really interesting because you're really, really successful. And I, I think that success is talks to uh, your conviction and you know i want to know you know you're hunting these areas a lot and i want to know how much you you hunt you ever log your hours for how many times you're you're hunting um you know a particular deer or a particular area and then on top of that i kind of want to get into what allows you to hunt these really cold areas what what are your tricks of the trade because you know being technical means you've got to know the process you've got to have a philosophy and you've got to be able to stick to it. And so I want to know how you, you survive those, those cold winter months. Yeah, I think, I mean, I end up putting a lot, it's a lot of time into to Michigan. You know, I think you can go out of, out of state where there's higher deer densities and you probably have a shorter learning curve and can, you know, typically get it done in, in a week if you have it have it slotted out like that where you can gain enough information where eventually you can, you can, you can strike. So Michigan ends up being, you know, a real long (laughs) kind of, you know, arduous challenge every year. And once it gets into the late season, I like hunting the cold temperature. I think if you're going to hunt in the cold, you're going to need good equipment. So, I mean, you're going to want to have your, merino base layers you're going to want to have high quality camouflage you know i recently started using osseo gear and if anybody's looking for clothes they have some really high quality stuff that uh you know is designed for for whitetail hunters but when it gets really cold i'll often i'll switch to uh I have an IWOM suit, which if anybody's 
seen one of those. It's uh, it's not the heater bodysuit. It's the other one where it, it only has one leg. Basically, you zip it you zip it up and your feet are together. But with that, I'm able to you know hunt down into the single digits and and below zero with with no problem. I think part of it's you're able to carry that whole thing into into the tree and get dressed at the tree where you're not sweating up on your way in and and you know kind of causing your own problems from that i think the iwams who's interesting i just pulled up online when you're talking about that you know in your areas i think that makes a lot of sense and having you know this pack set up where you can walk in you can like when i go hunting sometimes i go hunting my underwear and i'll have uh my boxer shorts on and a t-shirt, right? And everything's in my pack and I'll change either prior to getting the stand location or directly at the stand location. I've had instances where, you know, I've walked in, dropped some of my gear, uh, changed shoes throughout the way. It just depends, you know, what my, you know, duration of a hike and the elevation and all that kind of stuff. Because my goal in this is just to not sweat, right? That's, that's the ideal scenario. So when it comes to scent mitigation, because this is something that you're strong on, you know, what do you do, you know, in the stand or on the way to the stand, or maybe you change your diet. I change my diet, right? In that, you know, what are your, what is your philosophy around trying to minimize your scent or minimizing the concentration of your scent in some of the areas that you're hunting? What's, what's your strategy around that? So I'll, I will, I'll take chlorophyll and stuff like that. I mean, that's, that's doctors prescribe that for, people with problematic body odor. So, I mean, that's pretty much proven to work. Um, I get in this conversation quite a, bit, quite a bit with the dogs. And the weird thing about being a canine handler for, for six years and watching the dogs and working with the dogs and training the dog, it's almost taught me to push the envelope more than, more than I did before. And you'd think that, you know, once you realize that, you know, how sophisticated the dog's sense of smell is or the, the deer's sense of smell that you'd, you'd give up all hope. But the one thing that working with dogs has taught me is when it relates to deer hunting, it's not necessarily about detection and what the deer are capable of smelling. It's about the deer's ability to problem solve. Because if they, if they don't come up with the right answer, then you know, there's a good chance they're getting shot. So there's situations that you can create that make the problem more difficult for the, the deer to solve and come up with the, with the correct answer. And every deer is different. I mean, to talk about what they're capable of doing is like for me to ask you if, you know, you're capable of running a mile in a world record time. Well, <laughs> a human's capable of it doesn't mean that, that everyone can do it. So I think, I think everybody does some sort of, we'll call it scent reduction to some de- degree because hunting the wind is a form of scent reduction. Hunting in a tree stand is a form of scent reduction. Both those things bent the vast majority of human odor coming in contact with the deer's nose. So we're all doing something. So if you can give yourself an advantage, and, and I'll never situate myself where you know a deer is going to be traveling directly downwind into my location because that's an easy problem i've i've created an easy problem for the deer to solve for the deer to come up with the correct answer so i want to create difficult problems for the deer to solve and you know people who want off winds or you know obviously elevated positions utilizing thermals things like that are creating more difficult problems for the deers to solve because anybody who sat around a campfire knows that the wind is going to shift periodically. And I, I recently learned this more than I ever realized when I was training my explosive dog. And part of the training was you'd put a training aid out in kind of an, an open area and you'd bring the dog downwind and, you know, as the person who puts the training aid out there, I know the way the wind's going. A lot of times I I do it in areas where there's a flag where I could see exactly where the wind would be coming from. And I'd 
am willing to say 75% of the time, by the time I got the dog out of the car and started the training exercise, the wind was blowing in a completely opposite direction. So even if the wind is in your face, the deer could be coming in contact with human odor, but they're not able to come up with the right, the right answer to the equation because they're not getting a steady enough stream of, of human odor. And I think that that's the one thing I think people don't recognize is that there's a huge problem-solving component to, to odor detection and that, you know, especially as a public land hunter, you're almost blessed with the ability to really push the envelope because there's, there's not as many negative consequences compared. If you only have a 20-acre piece, I wouldn't push the envelope at all. Like, I'd be very, you know, reserved in my approaches. I'd hunt the perimeters. I'd be very patient compared to if you're hunting a large area public, I mean, you can, you can really push the envelope knowing that you can make adjustments, go to a different area. And also there's a likelihood somebody else is going to mess it up the next day anyway. So, I mean, kind of strategically really being aggressive puts you in situation where the deer feel way more comfortable. And if they feel more, if they feel comfortable, you're very likely to see them compared to if you're, you know, hunting with the wind directly in your face every single day, you know, you're kind of hoping that the deer is forced to make a mistake in order to get somewhere that he wants to go. Yeah. This is the, everything you brought up here is so situational, but also so applicable to anybody's really hunting, you know, tactics. And one of the things I want to get to with you is you've been able to key on some really big, big antler deer, older age deer. And this, this idea of disturbance, this intrusion factor, the things you're bringing up here at the end of this, when you're going after a deer like that of age, and of age, you assume of intellect, right? And in that, you know, they're they're keen on their their environments that they're they're living in. Maybe in some instances, they're they're not so keen because they're in the focus of breeding. But you said you've killed deer, a lot of deer in the later season, which that means they've gone through a, a gauntlet of hunting. And maybe in some of the areas, the deer don't have a much you know much human disturbance at all potentially because of you know there's the lack of hunting pressure. But regardless, they've they've experienced some form, you know, of change, and and maybe it's you know a diet shift. You know, they they're they're worn down from the rut. But you've been able to key in, you know, later in December. What is your trick to that particular scenario? We're getting on some of these deer later season, you know, and, and you're considering all these other factors. Like what? Maybe tell us a story of some of your success and how you attacked a particular deer, and and you killed this deer. I, I kind of want to hear a little bit more about your tactics there. I think, you know, once we get into the, in the later part of the year, the snow kind of shrinks the playing field where, you know, they're going to be forced to go to certain areas. So I think that's part of the, the advantage shift in my direction. And then, you know, having identified where they, where they felt most comfortable we'll call it their, their home range for, for at least during the, the velvet part of the season. Cause they end up, they end up migrating and we're talking, you know, getting four feet of snow in a week is gonna, you know, really start pushing them to make decisions that are based on their survival and compared to where their patterns are really focused on browse. It's the one time where they're going to be more predictable going to, certain areas where if you see them, you know, go to a food source one evening that there's a high likelihood that they'll be going to the same food source, the following one. So it's identifying, they end up being mostly large acorn flats. And I usually, I usually find them in the spring and find them in the spring by when you're scouting, you'll find, areas where the oak leaves are just totally pulverized just like all in pieces where you can barely even tell you know what the shape of the leaf is 
And what I started to learn was that was from that heavy browse during the snow where they're real, where they're pawing at the, at the ground so much to dig up the acorns where they're just crushing all the leaves underneath these trees. And then coming back to those, those same areas during good acorn crops in the following years, knowing that they're going to come here because not all the acorn flats are created equally. Like you could have an acorn flat that has a million acorns in the spring and it's, it's most likely in an area that for whatever reason, the deer can't access through the snow where they're burning too much calories to get in there. Or, you know, the, the bedding isn't close enough because thermal cover ends up saving the deer's lives in the, in the winter where, you know, if they can limit how many calories they're forced to burn just to stay alive, that, that cuts down on the amount of food they need to consume. So you need the right combination of, of a food source with thermal cover in an area near where they felt comfortable in the summer. Cause they end up, they end up staging. It's a weird thing. There's like a, there's like a two week period where they'll stage up before they fully migrate. And, you know, I don't, there's studies that say they'll go, you know, many, many miles when they migrate, but they, they stage up and they almost bachelor up. Like I've had it where you'll find an acorn flat and you'll have, you'll have nothing but, you know, there could be a group of four bucks and no does, which is, you know, opposite of what we typically see with, with our, with our buck doe ratio is way skewed to does. We haven't even been allowed to harvest does for probably like six years. So you can figure what that does to the, does to the dynamic. But so if you're all of a sudden finding areas where there's only bucks, you know, it's, it's something that's outside of the migration zone. It's outside of the wintering zones. They've kind of, you know, turned into survival mode where they're not really interested in breeding anymore. And they're, and they're being led around by their stomach. And, you know, that's kind of where things really start to tip in my, in my favor. If I've, if I've located a deer that uh, I wanted to harvest and I, <laughs> I didn't even answer your question about the one. So no, basically, interesting. Go, so, I like so the one buck, I found him in spring. I got a picture of him in velvet. He was all, he was around quite a bit when he was in velvet in this, in this one area. Came into the season. He kind of left during the season. He was in and out a little bit during the rut, not around very much. And I was hunting a different buck at the time, so I kind of just left him alone. And then it got to late season and I was kind of, you know, I, I have to, you know, kind of switch my tactics once the snow starts coming. Um, you know, my biggest problem has been access once we get a lot of snow. So I bought an ATV with tracks so I can pretty much get anywhere I need to go. So I drive, you know, I'll drive that a couple miles down a, down a logging road where you can't even drive a truck in there anymore. There's so much snow. So I was able to relocate him. And he was, he was in there like every single night, you know, he'd kind of bounce around here or there, kind of figuring out where he was coming into this flat. And the one big thing that I kind of learned from, from these deers hunting this one flat was it was, it was completely, my axis had to be completely opposite of what I normally would do. Normally when you come to your tree, you hook downwind to your tree, you know, where where you don't think the deer are going to walk and then you get to your tree. Well, cause the, the snow ends up getting so deep. I was realizing that where I walked, that's where the deer would start to walk. <laughs> so I had to walk yeah. like directly, you know, directly where I wanted to shoot the deer and then come in the opposite direction of my tree. And as I started walking down this trail, they started taking it over and then uh, eventually, you know, one evening, I think for whatever reason, I don't know if it was the moon phase or what it was, but I mean, they, he showed up like probably two hours before, before dark and was able to get an arrow in them. Well, I, it's amazing to me, late season and your success late season, and then keying in on these, these areas like you, you detailed and, you know, your explanation of trying to dial into how frequently those are being used. And again, this old discerning element of, you know, 
bucks may be congregating these areas for a certain reason and kind of diagnosing that and then attacking and having the equipment to do that as well, back to the gear thing. It just is, is all play on, you know, just having really a high focus towards, you know, success. And then, you know, I, I guess trying everything that you can to learn, you know, the most about deer in a particular area to get really kind of good systematic approach to handling, you know, maybe a late season hunt. It, it, it's just impressive to me in your scenario. The other thing you brought up earlier, and I, I just love that you said this is if you're hunting a small area, your intrusion is so meaningful. And then, you know, comparably you're just giving this explanation where you're actually plowing trails, you know, through the, 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 the properties, you know, through the public property where, where deer are utilizing it, you know, because path of least resistance. And, you know, it just brings up another point of, you know, if you just were out there hiking and you're, creating you know trail systems adding to the strategy you know you could essentially push these deer into an area just just based on that and maybe they aren't so freaked out by you know your human scent in those particular areas etc because you know there's a benefit and advantage to your interaction in that environment it's just it's an interesting thing to think about and you know some of these areas you know we get about i get about 100 inches of snow on average it's been a little bit lower the past couple years so, you know, we'll get a, a good, healthy snow load. North of me gets quite a bit more. But, you know, I've seen environments like you're talking about where there's, you know, small migrations. People will negate the fact that, you know, migrations happen in certain areas. They, they absolutely do come off these plateaus and they come down to lower lands. But there are these, you know, micro movements that, you know, I think you can concentrate on, you know, late season where there is snow load. And your example of taking advantage of that, I think, is is really interesting. All right. So we're kind of getting to the end of this and I, I wanted to kind of end with, I, I know that, you know, uh, you use e-bikes. So I want to talk a little bit about e-bikes and um, I don't have an e-bike. So I'm a little interested in this from a gear standpoint. And uh, I know you sell e-bikes and you, you make one. So I want to hear a little bit more about that. And then, you know, uh, just your advantages, disadvantages, you know, what do you think about them? So I started a company at stealth hunting e-bikes. I started it two years ago, I probably, I, I started to dabble in it probably four years ago. And then I started the company two years ago and it was basically just to, to build bulletproof e-bikes specifically designed for hunters. So the bikes I sell have no derailleur. They just have the one gear. They have maximum speed of 16 miles per hour. They're mid drive powered and they're thousand watt motors, but I program them to operate at 750 watts because the max speed is only 16 miles per hour. So you don't need the extra wattage to reach speeds of like 28 miles per hour. So they're public land compliant. And for me, it was about kind of what I said before, where, you know, efficiency ends up killing deer. So the more information you can get, the more successful you're going to be. So if I can utilize an e-bike and check 10 cameras in a day compared to two, you know, I'm getting way more information that's going to potentially make me successful. And, you know, being able to utilize the bikes, I think the last couple deer I've shot, you know, before the, before the snow started falling, where I consider those bike bucks or whatever, where, you know, the bike was a big part of that harvest and, you know, getting to areas where, other people aren't being able to hide my vehicle where I can park in one area, drive the bike for two miles. And then people have no idea where I'm at compared to if I park my vehicle closer to where I'm hunting, you know, there's more likelihood that somebody's going to start sniffing around or looking around where, where I might be. So a lot of that has been using the, the bikes in somewhat of a, a deceptive matter to, to hide my, hide my truck but I mean they give you the ability to access from different angles that you'd never think about even if it's from the road where you know there's a lot of areas where there's no parking and those are the places that I want I want places where there's only a handful of places where people are allowed to or you know can can actually park with without blocking the roadway so if I can utilize a bike to access from different angles and, and to hunt areas where other people aren't going, I think it's been a, it's been a huge advantage. Yeah. And I, I love the decoy example and the efficiency piece of that is critical. I just think about like working on any property for me, 
and I, I this is this is how I design hunting properties is I want access into an area and I want it to be you know easily uh, available to the equipment right so I can get in there and do my job efficiently. In, in the case of just checking cameras or you know and you've got large vast areas, this efficiency to that point is huge. The stealthness is obviously also important, and I'm I'm a huge fan of this because I'm start now starting to revert back. I'm getting out of hunting private land i'm actually hunting some public land this year which is totally unique to my style and you know getting back to some things i did years ago when i was younger in college and just trying some new things and the e-bike piece of this you know would be huge in my equation of success just from a time management standpoint Um, and i don't think people realize you know i'll spend you know three grand or four grand on something that's going to make me that more efficient because over time as long as i take care of that you know it'll pay dividends you know and i'm i'm a big fan of you know, equipment that makes you more efficient in the field. Obviously, there's an expense that comes with that. So you have to weigh that in the equation. So, you know, otherwise, get up earlier, right? Um, maybe you got to go and wake up at 3 a.m. because you got to check cameras, you know, longer duration of the day. Maybe you don't have that time. So then you're smarter with your spot location, et cetera, you know, where you're collecting data, et cetera, how you collect data. So I think that all plays into kind of your decision-making process, you know, in the scheme of, you know, making a decision on certain gear, et cetera. Okay, so we're at the end of this, theater, and I wanted to say, is there anything else you want to end on and, you know, something that maybe a, a listener can take away from maybe the past couple of years that, that you've kind of keyed in on that was like, boy, I, I wish I would have known this, or, you know, this is really kind of a, a game changer for me. What What's something that's been like that over the past three, four years outside of the bikes that could be very helpful for somebody who, you know, really wants to take it to the next level? I think it's, it's confidence. You need to have confidence in in what you're doing. And sometimes that can be difficult. I think in the age of Facebook, I think it, we always feel like we're, we're behind the curve or, I mean, even right now with like, I haven't even really started hunting and you kind of, you're seeing people post pictures and you're like, geez, you know, (laughs) I'm behind, behind the, behind the game already. But you know, you have to hunt your own hunt. You have to, you know, kind of realize what you're, what you're physically and mentally willing to do. And you're going to need to make, mis- make decisions. When you make those decisions, you have to be confident what you decided to do. Because I really think that confidence kills deer. Because if you're confident, you get up early, you get into your tree efficiently, not making a whole lot of noise. You know, you climb up into your tree, dead quiet. You get up there, you're focused, you're paying attention, you're not on your phone. And then when you finally get an opportunity, you're able to to capitalize on that information, capitalize on that opportunity. And I think the big mistake people make is, you know, they make a decision and then, you know, they, they don't, uh, maybe they don't have the confidence in, in their ability, but they get, they get sloppy. And, you know, if, if you knew for sh- with a hundred percent certainty, the tree you picked, the buck of your dreams is going to walk in your walk in and your exit from that tree would be totally different than if you kind of went in there thinking you're not going to see anything. So if you can have that mindset where you're, you're on the top of your game and you can maintain that mindset throughout a season, I can guarantee you're going to have some success. But if you go through a season and you're sloppy and you're making mistakes and you're not focused, you're either going to blow an opportunity or you're not going to have an opportunity at all. So I think, you know, whether that goes back to my prior life as, as an athlete or, or what, but, uh, you know, you have to be mentally focused and committed to being at the top of your game if you want to be successful. Yeah, and I think I'm going to add to this, Dieter. I think everything you say, I echo and agree with 100%. The other thing is having multiple plans of attack. And if you don't execute the first time, don't give up. I've had instances where I've gotten down on myself and I've given up. And that I've said to myself, don't give up. I mean, giving up and quitting is one of the worst things you can do. Even if you failed in that one particular scenario, you'll do better. Um, it's only up from there. And I always had that kind of positive outlook. 
and then having alternative options, having a plan B and C and having that depth to you, you know, if something fails, right? If this deer doesn't work out, do I have a plan B? There's some years where I don't have a plan B and I'm okay with that. And I've already accepted that, right? But I know that going into the season and I'm open-minded, maybe I'll learn something else from this, or maybe I'll try something new that I'm, I'm not so worried about not working. And so you're going to get wins in the equation, maybe just in a, a different mindset. And so it's being realistic and prioritizing the things that you're trying to gain from the season. So don't just, I think, don't just try to gain from an outcome. You know, the, the means to end is not the deer. In some cases, it may be for food you know, value, et cetera. But generally speaking, you know, walking into this and having a plan and executing or failing, there's wins and losses along that way. And I think the wins that you get out of it, you know, maybe something so small, minute that add to your technical hunting. And that's kind of where I want to end this is, you know, be technical uh, and, and tactical. I like your terminology, you know, tactical scrapes and tactical this or technical this, because in, in all that, it shows that you're attending to the detail and that detail is what makes property design well or a hunt to go successfully. And some of the things that you missed out on you know, your technical mishaps are the things that you'll repair the next go around. So I want to kind of end with that. Dieter, I appreciate your time today. I will have some links if people want to check out your bikes, they can get a hold of you there. What's the best way to get a hold of you anyhow? On Facebook, I'm under Dieter Cocken, and then the e-bikes under Stealth Hunting e-bikes. And then on Instagram, I'm under either my name or I think it's at Ranger Matthews for the Instagram. And then, yeah, those are probably the two easiest ways to get a hold of me. If anybody has any questions about the bikes, feel free to call or, or message me. And, you know, I want to make sure that when people make a purchase like that, they're getting exactly what they need for, for their situation. Awesome. All right, man. Well, thanks for the time today. And uh, hopefully we get to check in with you, you know, maybe even before the end of season and see how uh, your late season hunting went as well as your mid season. Sounds great. Look forward to it. All right. Talk soon. See ya. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.